0: This talk is called, Why Don't We Ever Talk About Love? That's a question you might remember that Mole asked in the very first koan that we talked about. Um, I I was warned by my trusty band of leaders that yesterday's talk was very long and very uncomfortable for you, and so please feel free to adjust your position as necessary during the course of this talk, which might be a bit longer than the usual talk because of my attempt to squeeze a lot into a small space. Okay, thank you. So, yesterday... I mentioned the case of the 41st ancestor, Guangji, who came to say, see Dao Pi and said, an ancient master said, I do not love what worldly people love. I wonder, what does your reverence love? The ancestor, Dao Pi, said, I have already become like this. The master, Guangji, hearing this, had great Satori. That response, I have already become like this, was one of the most mysterious utterances I'd ever heard when I first encountered this koan. It seemed to be a non sequitur. Become like what? What is this? Yet both the question and the answer were full of love, of intimacy, of bodhicitta. Kazan's verse is a clue to this. The moon of mind, flowers of eyes are bright and beautiful, opening since time beyond Kalpas. Who will play with them? That verse itself opens a door, invites us into play. Who could resist? This is the play we may first encounter just sitting for the first time with no expectations, knowing nothing. We may notice for the first time our beating heart or the colour of the floor. Beginner's mind. Remember that? Do you remember when you very first started sitting? Do you remember hearing early in your practice that beginner's mind was the way? And it was the way because, as Shunryo Suzuki put it so beautifully in his book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, If your mind is empty, it's always ready for anything. It's open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. But in the expert's mind, there are few When we first start our practice, we have no idea what... and we are are open to everything, to awakening, to enlightenment, whatever that is. This is bodhicitta, the heart-mind of awakening, of compassion, of love. Bodhicitta is the Mahayana way, the bodhisattva path. In our great vows, this is expressed clearly The many beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. Dharma gates are countless. I vow to wake to them. Buddha's way is unsurpassed. I vow to embody it fully. This is sometimes taken as a call to altruism to feeding the poor and sending the sick. And of course it is that. But it's something else too. It's about helping ourselves and others to not love what worldly people love. I'll give you a few seconds to think about what worldly people love. To become like this, like this, this Sunday afternoon, this aching back, ah, the green walls, the subdued afternoon light, the candles on the altar. The radiance of sore knees the bird's song. Come on birds. <laughs> <laughs> A call to the compassion of true intimacy. Have we forgotten this? Did we fall into thinking that this self is somehow contained in here? Thank you. <laughs> in, in our thoughts, in our anxieties, defined by our specific likes and dislikes, by what we cling, cling to and by what we push away. How busily can we keep all this at bay? while we ceaselessly create ourselves. But as beginners, as novices, we're willing to be open, like newborns we've not yet put up barriers. So can we now, even days into this event, perhaps years after starting to practise, drop everything we think we know, assure we know, and meet this moment completely as it is. No assumptions no barriers, no conditions. As Guo Gu said, our attachment to a fixed sense of I is unnecessary. We can actually function better without it, adapting to changes when faced with obstacles. (laughs) But when we fixate on this sense of me, I and mine, and inject it into our daily interactions with others, we hinder the natural expression of our buddha nature as experiencing and cause suffering for ourselves and others. Why? Because it is contrary to how we actually are, free and open, wondrously changing and with great potential. Citta means mind but it also means heart and also attitude. Bodhi means awake, enlightened or completely open. Apparently the completely open heart and mind of Bodhicitta is sometimes called the soft spot. A place vulnerable and tender like an open wound and is related in part to our ability to love. We all have Buddha nature of course Though whether a dog does is for you to realise for yourself. But bodhicitta refers to an orientation towards compassion and love. This is not something limited to Buddhists or even people. Can you think of an experience when you've been surprised to feel an outpouring of tenderness towards someone or something you've approached with compassion, a desire to help ease suffering? I always remember my Linky, my daughter's not-very-friendly cat that developed a huge abscess on its cheek, which had to be cleaned out each day and which exuded horrible green pus in vast quantities. It was truly horrible to look at and the thought of having to clean this was stomach-turning. Yet, amazingly, when I first tried it, the cat went completely soft in my arms. So happy was it to have the pus squeezed out, that, as I concentrated on doing the job as well as I could, all the disgust fell away and I felt an unanticipated outpouring of love for that funny creature. I suspect that something like this may happen when health professionals and paramedics are called upon to deal with injuries and ailments that many of us feel squeamish about, that actually take compassion action, taking compassionate action can activate the soft spot in us when we are so focused on doing what needs to be done to ease someone's suffering that we forget ourselves completely. I know I said it was not limited to Buddhists or even people, so are there any limits, I wonder? I recently saw a video of a turtle floating helplessly on its back. All the other turtles around swam towards it, and surrounded it in a circle, and then they were able to flip it over so it was again able to swim. I don't know. I don't know if turtles feel compassion, but they all got together to help one who would otherwise have died. Though my soft spot was certainly touched, I can't speak for turtles. I can only observe their compassionate action. Apparently one day a new student at Tassahara Monastery asked the meaning of the words that are chanted each day in Sino-Japanese when monks put on their rakasu. Here, in this Sangha, lay practitioners who have taken Jukai recite them silently to themselves in English before the first round of Zazen, where they are translated as, I wear the robe of liberation the formless field of benefaction, the teachings of the Tathagata, saving all the many beings. A new arrival at Tassahara asked Suzuki Roshi what the words meant, and he said, I don't know. (laughs) So his attendant at the time, Katagiri Sensei, as he then was, started searching around for an accurate translation when Suzuki Roshi said, Stop! and then turned to the student, pointed to his heart and said, love, it's love. There's a koan that many of you will be familiar with, I'm sure, Women quan case 35, Wuzu, which is the true jian. Um Now, do all of you know that, is there anyone who doesn't know the story of that Colin. okay well i'll give a very i'll do my best to give a brief praise of it <laughs> um there was a it, it's an old japanese folks story and, and and um there was um well it must be a chinese folk story actually originally but anyway there was a um in there was a man called ken and he had a daughter called jan And she was very beautiful, of course, and he had a nephew who was very handsome. And they were children and they played together. And one day he jokingly said, oh, you're going to marry each other when you grow up. And the kids remembered this and assumed they were going to marry each other. But when Jan grew up, her dad didn't want her to marry his nephew. He wanted her to marry a rich man and um, got it all arranged. And, of course, the nephew um, was... Um, Zhao, he was really angry, and he, you know, well, I'm stuck this, I'm heading off if you're going to do that. Um, but in the middle of the night, he was really startled to hear the voice of his cousin saying, you know, wait, it's me, and she, she ran along towards the boat where he was going to head off, and she got into the boat, and off they set in the boat to another province and where they lived happily for six years and had two children but um, the daughter Jan was really upset um, because she um, you know she'd gone away with her cousin because she'd promised that she would marry him Um, but she also felt bad about her dad and, and things you know and she owed obligations to him so her husband Zhao said okay we'll go back and see them and as was the custom in those days he went off first leaving Jan alone in the boat while he went back to see Kien who welcomed his nephew with every sign of joy and said how much I've been longing to see you I was afraid that something had happened to you and of course the nephew was a bit befuddled by this because after all he would just nicked off with the this guy's daughter without telling anybody so he said you know to what matters do you refer I thought you were angry with me for having run away with Jan and the guy said well what Jan are you talking about and he thought what's what's my father you know father-in-law going on about he's having me on here and then the Father said, well, you know, Jan's been sick in bed all these years, ever since you went away. And Zhao said, well, that's ridiculous, you know, sort of, she's been with, been my wife for six years and we've got kids. Are you mocking me? So then Chen said, come and look, and he took um, his nephew into the room where a sick girl was lying. And there was Jan lying in bed, beautiful but strangely thin and pale. And she couldn't speak or anything. So Kian said to her laughingly, Jao tells me that you ran away from home with him and that you gave him two children. But she couldn't speak. Now come with me to the river, said the Jao, you know, said to his father-in-law, because your daughter Jan is at the moment in my boat. So they went to the river and there was the young wife waiting. And Kian said, if you really are my daughter, I have nothing but love for you. Yet though you seem to be my daughter, there's something I can't understand. Come with me. So, (laughs) father and nephew and daughter make their way back to the house. And as they neared it, they saw that the sick girl, who had not left her bed for years, was coming to meet them, smiling, smiling as if much delighted. And as the two jians approached each other and became one body, one person, nobody could ever tell how, they just melted into one person, even more beautiful than before, and showing no sign of sickness or sorrow. And the um, jian... Uh, You know, ever since... The father said, you know, ever since the day of your going, my daughter was dumb and most of the time like a person who has taken too much wine. (sighs) And now I know that her spirit was absent. So Jan herself said, really, I never knew that I was at home. I saw Jao going away in silent anger. and the same night, I dreamed that I ran after his boat. But now I can't tell which was really I. The one that went away on the boat... Or the eye that stayed at home? Oh. So, you know, there's a koan question for this. You know, which was the true Jan? Which seems to demand that we make a choice, doesn't it? How can we make an impossible choice? And it reminds me of another koan. A scholar travelled a long distance to meet with Master Chen Chenryu. He entered the hall and he and Xiong looked at each other. The scholar said, I've come to visit this ship of compassion, but who would have guessed that the ship of compassion would turn out to be nothing but an old crone? Xiong gave an earth-shattering roar. What is this place? Tell me, is it male or is it female? When the scholar couldn't reply, she said to him, Come closer and I'll tell you. When the scholar was right in front of her, she grabbed him and said, From the day you left Spirit Mountain, there has been no place to seek. From this day on, mother and son are reunited. The scholar said, I trust you completely and bowing to Chiang, requested ordination from her. And I think that both these koans put to rest any idea that we don't talk about love. Our way is actually about nothing but. Unfortunately, we may not recognise it because we still see ourselves as separate. Me here, you there, one jian here, the other somewhere on a boat. A young man shocked into rudeness when he can't recognise the old woman before him as the ship of compassion that he was seeking. How do we reconcile with ourselves, our our true selves? This is our task, all day, every day. This is our practice. Can we, too, become like this? Thich Nhat Hanh's writing on love had inspired me to do this as the theme for Everyday Zen late last year when I did a solo retreat focusing on love meditation. And it was only slowly that it dawned on me that the love he exuded personally, and you can see it in the films about him like Walk With Me for example, particularly when you see him engaging with children, and... It was because he actually practised what he preached. And he did this all the time. It's easy to imagine that some people who seem to exude charismatic warmth in the way of the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh were just naturally loving. But actually, this is the result of deep daily practice. And by this I mean all-day, every-day practice. This Everyday Zen, I've focused on love, including on love meditation. But as you can see from what the practice of that meditation is, it demands that we put effort into actually doing it in practice. It's not just about somehow sending loving thoughts wafting through the ether to somebody, though that's certainly a good place to start. It's about actually responding with loving attention to everyone and everything both to ourselves and those we mistakenly designate as other than ourselves. One of the things we have noticed in working with the meta Meditation developed by Thich Nhat Hanh is that it's not just about sending loving thoughts to ourselves or someone else. It's about taking action. We are asked to actually pay attention to our own feelings, to notice our own anger fear, anxiety, and other destructive emotions, known as kleshas in Sanskrit. We need to notice when we're angry or fearful and so on, and then do something about it, not just react angrily or fearfully. Breathe, relax, pay attention when a thought or a feeling appears. It can be difficult But the more we practice, the earlier we notice the upwelling of discomfort and the more skilled we become at catching our unhelpful emotions before they overwhelm us. It's work. It takes attention and effort and we need to do it all the time. We start off doing it as a meditative practice on the cushion. But if we can be alert to the arising of unhelpful thoughts and feelings all the time It eases suffering for us all. Over time, as we pay attention to this, we notice patterns, old favourites. These are our habits of thought and feeling and are what is meant when people talk of conditioned responses. Our aim is to let go of these and to help others to do so too, mainly by paying attention ourselves and planting and encouraging the growth of the seeds of joy and happiness in ourselves and in others. During these few days, unfortunately much fewer than I had hoped, um, we have started to explore this through our focus on love. Love, which is actually nothing other than giving our attention. Why do you say paying attention, I wonder? We give our attention to whomever we are with and whatever we are doing without any self-aggrandizing behavior, without doing it to benefit ourselves. I must give a little warning here, be very careful. Behaving well towards others can have the dangerous side effect of making you feel better. And that's fine, just don't do it for that reason. Also, don't be surprised or discouraged if giving someone your attention backfires spectacularly sometimes too. Life's like that. My friend, um, um, the one who told me about do you want to practice the Dharma or just keep suffering, told me at the same time about a Catholic priest in Nashville that she'd been reading about. Charlie Strobel started the Room in the Inn and its Campus for Human Development in 1986 as a place of shelter and relief for people living on the streets. But it was something that had grown from one cold winter's night years before, when he found some homeless people sheltering in the car park at the rectory where he lived, so he invited them in for the night. What else could he do? Of course, more and more kept turning up, including one man called Doy, who was really difficult, rude and offensive to everyone. Everyone, that is, except Mrs Hopwood, the housekeeper. Catholic clergy seem to have housekeepers. So, anyway, <laughs> she was always quiet and respectful towards Doy, and he reciprocated. Charlie said, About that time I was reading something Dorothy Day had said. She said... What she wanted to do was to love the poor, not analyse them, not rehabilitate them. When I read that, it was like a light clicking on. I thought about Mrs Hopwood. I realised that Doy was not my problem to solve, but my brother to love. I decided on the spot that I was going to love him and not expect anything from him. And overnight he changed. He stopped the cussing, stopped the violence. I feel we became brothers. I was his servant and he was my master. I was there with him when he died. Speaking later with Arthur Wells Roshi about this, he recalled what he called the mantra, which Arthur actually found rather alarming, that was chanted by the person who was his supervisor as a therapist years ago. And before each therapy session, he would say to himself, I cannot change this person, I cannot change this person, I cannot change this person. We so often want to change people, thinking it will help. But we can't, and it won't. Not ever. That mantra actually sounded rather alarming to me too. For some people it is more appropriate to frame their compassionate approach as I can't change this person than to commit to loving them. Particularly in the therapeutic context it could be problematic perhaps even seen as overstepping some ethical boundary and this is probably why it's easier to call what we feel as teachers, therapists, friends, loving kindness or compassion or in the Christian tradition charity. But this points to a problem. In English, the meaning of charity, which originally meant love, but was directed towards people who might be poor or sick or in some way disadvantaged, and so on, somehow took on a kind of lesser status than love, which was directed upward to God and our equals. (laughs) Um, It's for this reason it feels good to hear about Charlie Strobel talking of loving people not trying to fix them, and this is exactly what meta love is about too. We direct meta towards people with love with ease, our partners, our children, our family and dear friends, but also to people we are fairly neutral about, like the bus driver and the cashier at Woolies and our dentist, and also to people we struggle to even feel kindly towards. But only we ourselves need to know to whom we find find hard to love. But the really good thing is that we don't have to do anything else. That's the job. That's our practice. We don't have to want that person. We don't have to employ them or marry them or vote for them. We just have to love them. We just have to give them our attention when necessary and respond appropriately without anger or wanting a particular result. Of course you never know what might happen then. The meta-meditation we've been working with is focused on people but in our Bodhisattva vows we vow to save the many beings. That includes dogs and cats and tigers and sharks and Octopuses, and a huge long list I've written down here, which I'll skip. And then there are the plants and fungi, and now other groups like bacteria and protozoa. And it's becoming increasingly apparent that we are much more interdependent with other forms of life than we thought. Each of us here is not a discrete body, but home to millions of other organisms without which we wouldn't thrive. Sometimes we can't save all beings, But we can be grateful to them, and we can treat them well, and not squander them. The other life forms we eat, or use for clothing, or medicine, or to pollinate our crops, or to provide us with shelter. Not to mention the rivers, mountains, caves, plains, and deserts, the whole world herself. (sighs) I expect you can see that I'm meandering inexorably towards the major issue of our time the ecological and climate crisis that is already threatening so many beings on this earth, perhaps life itself. Already we have witnessed the fires, floods and loss of species and habitats, not to mention war. I'm not going to dwell on these issues here except to say that practicing metta meditation, love meditation, is vital when life is difficult. We saw during COVID, when I wrote that it was sort of in the past tense. (laughs) We saw during COVID how polarized people can become, family members and friends turning against each other because some were anti-vaxxers and others were not only vaccinated but masked. We see the increasing polarization in the USA over both guns and abortion. And although so far in Australia it seems that at a local level people have generally pulled together during times of flood and fire, there is already vastly increased polarisation of wealth as the powerful seek to protect themselves and even profit from the impending disasters. Though the scale is different, Such political and environmental difficulties were well known in the Buddha's time in India and Nepal. And many of the most illustrious Zen teachers in China lived during times of catastrophic political unrest. It is not coincidental that Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama, who grew up in the midst of war and turmoil, different wars, different turmoils, are revered for their loving, compassionate nature as much as for their wisdom. Many Dharma teachers and practitioners wonder where to direct their energies. Should they keep doing what they are doing or become climate activists or head to a monastery? How do we best save the many beings? How do we ease suffering? Our Zen Buddhist tradition emphasizes its two wings, wisdom and compassion. In the Diamond Sangha, like many Zen lineages, wisdom often appears to be prioritized in the training and is absolutely essential. But so is love, compassion and so Over the years, some meta-practice became more accepted as part of the practice. This year, in everyday Zen, we have explored it more deeply. But actually, we've only just scratched the surface. So, whatever you are doing in your Zazen practice, keep going. But keep on practicing love too. Love is never wasted.